I work in palliative care, but as you can imagine, pain management is a big part of that. And for those of you who want to know, I have nothing to disclose, although I'm sure I could think of something, but not really relevant to this presentation. So um, we don't need to go way back. We'll get tight later. Our learning objectives are there, so we're going to talk about you know, where they act in the pain pathways. We'll talk about um, what's first line for what and risks and benefits. Um, how many of you are thinking of sitting for the CPE exam? Anyone? So this talk, and part of the purpose for this talk, so just full disclosure, um, within Pain Week is to help prepare for that. So it's not meant to be kind of like an exhausted, in-depth thing. We're co really covering the basics that you'd expect to see on the exam, um, and we're happy to kind of go where we need to go today, but that's kind of the purpose. You can imagine this uh, topic is kind of a lot to bite off for 50 minutes, so we'll see. Although we thought methadone and marijuana were going to be, you know, we'd be able to fit that in too. So we'll see where we go today and try to get it all day done, but we've got a lot of material to cover. So when we, um, this is the um, disclosure side, which I do think is worth a little laugh. But um, So when we think of um, the different objectives, we'll cover that. But when we think about adjuvant analgesics, you can think of the step ladder, so the WHO ladder. And you think, OK, well, step one, step two, step three. But guess what? There's adjuvants in each step, right? So who's up for an adjuvant? Everyone, right? Every step, you're thinking about how can we spare um, the opioids? How can we uh, treat a patient without heading into opioids? Do we really? The, I feel like it's always based on, do we have to use an opioid? And like our co-analgesics are the people that help us uh, you know, chill down a little bit, saying, but we're doing everything else, so I guess we better add an opioid. Um, so sometimes it really, there's a lower bar, I think, to adding some of these. But when we talk about it, we'll think, should there be? Maybe, um, maybe there should be a little bit of a higher bar. Um, this is kind of what we're going to uh, cover. Endorphins, we're not going there. It's, they're involved. Um, so acetaminophen, NSAIDs, you can look all the way down. We are going to think about corticosteroids in the mix, which isn't listed on that list, but that's kind of part of the anti-inflammatories that we'll cover. And when you think about what an adjuvant is, um, the purpose is serving to assist. It's auxiliary. That's the nature of the word, which makes sense. So an adjuvant analgesic does just that, right? It's a drug that has a primary indication other than pain, but then it kind of contributes to that pain, um, pain pathway. So when you hear the word co-analgesic and, and adjuvant, those should be used hand in hand. So I think sometimes people think, is that the same thing? And in the pain world, then, yeah, we can use them um, interchangeably. So we've got um, a lot of pain is complicated, right? So we have a lot of... Um, neurotransmitters, we've got a lot of targets for pain therapy, and as complicated as it is, when you think about the peripheral terminal, heading then the dorsal root ganglion, all the different pieces that we can intervene here into the spinal cord and central um, targets, that's a great, we've got like a menu of choices of different targets to use and different places they can interact, which is great because our pain is varied. Um, and the different pain needs that we have are high. So all these neurotransmitters, whether it works on peripheral desensitization, um, a descending modulator, or an anti-hyperanalgesic, which we talked about, when um, we'll cover those a little bit, like ketamine, um, or antinociception, like opioids, um, all of them are a piece of the puzzle. So a lot of times when we're thinking about selecting a coanalgesic, we can think about one that kind of covers a different type of pathway um, to really have some rational polypharmacy polypharmacy in our pain regimens. 
This is another kind of way of looking at it. Um, and a matter of fact, this is kind of how you do think about your advantages. So it's kind of a little more spelled out as far as the neurotransmitters go here. So um, when you think about treating pain, you think, well, peripheral sensitization leads to central sensitization, and it's all about upregulation of the sodium channels. So all of this barrage of information hits the thalamus, and thank goodness you have this descending inhibition with norepinephrine and serotonin that we can target to kind of help with the whole mess of things. And somehow, if we can put a lid on a couple of these different categories, we might be able to get that pain under control. Um, now, we can't, um, we have a lot of interpatient variability to responses to these medications. You can't look deeply in a patient's eyes and say, mm, I think your neurotransmitters are off. So we have, we try different things and we have kind of a rational approach for it, but we do see a lot of variation and I think that that's why we have different, we're made up of different stuff. So, um, so when we look here, we have different receptors, we have different things that are upregulated um, and that goes into a lot of the variability we see in how people respond to medications. So we're going to start with Tylenol. And I got to tell you, when, you know, people think of Tylenol, a lot of people just kind of brush right over it, right? It's kind of like it's Tylenol. But I think it does have an important role to play in pain management. And I think sometimes it's overlooked the value that it can bring to the table. I think other times um, it's relied on when maybe we've that ship has sailed and we're kind of past the point of what we would expect Tylenol to do. So I think we end up on both sides of the spectrum and the right place to be might be more in the middle where there's some value to it, but it's not going to cure everything. And sometimes it can just help to take the edge off. Um, so it's the active metabolite of finacetin. And finacetin used to be the main, um, you know, very popular medication that's used, and then it fell out of favor because it had uh, nephropathy that was associated with it. It's fairly circumstantial, but um, then Tylenol kind of took over as being the, kind of the mainstay as the metabolite. Um, so it's an analgesic antipyretic, as we all know, and it's widely available. So guess how many prescription combinations have Tylenol in them? Guess. Who wants to guess? Come on, we're in Vegas. Let's gamble. 100, 600. Whoa, you guys are blowing me out of the water here. 228. That's a lot. That's a lot. Not as high as 600. But, and guess how many um, OTC products? More than 60. So there's Tylenol everywhere. And I bet you if you ask most of your family members what's in a lot of those cold and flu preps, we all know that no one knows. In fact, there's a lot of prescribers. I do an opioid responsible opioid dosing workshop. And many of the prescribers, the residents that we're training, many of them forget Tylenols in Percocet. So, I mean, it sounds amazing sometimes to think that, but they've got a lot on their plate. And these are always worth reminding people um, and our fellow colleagues that we're talking about Tylenol when we're talking about Percocet. Um, so I think that's an important thing to remember. Um, so here's the pathways for acetaminophen pharmacokinetics and the absorption, distribution, and here's some of how it breaks down. The half-life is about, it peaks in 30 to 60 minutes. The half-life's about two to three hours, and about less than 5% of it is excreted unchanged. And you can see here how the metabolism plays out. So the pathways shown in blue lead to non-toxic metabolites. And the pathway in red is our troublemaker. So that's where it goes to the hepatic con uh, conjugation, and that's where the liver is involved, right? It's going to get that metabolized with glucuronide and sulfate, so you can see the different um, things. But those um, glucuronide and sulfate um, 
sulfation metabolism pathways, those are the art inactives. Where we get the 5 to 15% that's metabolized in that red pathway, um, the hydroxylation, that leads to our troublemaker. So that NAPKE, so that's kind of the common pronunciation of it, the NAPKE um, metabolite that gets us in trouble with uh, overdosing and hepatic dysfunction. So what um, does NAPKE stand for? Anyone know? N-A-P-Q-I. What do you think that stands for? Anyone want to take a guess? So um, it stands for N-acetyl-P, this is the hard one, benzoquinonamine. So that's good. I'd rather call it NAPKE. What about you? Um, so you can see here, this is the one that then, when that's formed, that's at the bottom there. You can see the NAPKE in the, in the bottom left of that diagram. Um, so when that gets conjugated, um, then that goes into inactive too. So that's the normal pathway, and like that's all running well. But in an overdose situation, that pathway gets saturated, and that's where you get the accumulation of the NAPKE, which is the toxic metabolite. And that's what's going on there is the saturation of that uh, pathway. So when the concentrations of the NAPKE increase, that's how we get the hepatotoxicity. So that's a really great question when you think about studying for CPE. You've got to know these pathways, and these are things that, um, you know, as pain providers, we've got to know. So when you look at liver toxicity, um, we know what, it, what it's for. Look how many hospitalizations, deaths, 40% um, of acute liver failure crises, um, cases, cases are related to this. This is a fairly large problem. We have not gotten our hands around this yet. So how many, have you, how many of you have seen a case of this in the last year? Anyone? Yeah. So they, you don't see them very often, but they're happening, and it's um, fairly big. So 38% uh, are taking more, uh, two or more OTC products, so we know that that's a big player. And here's the risk factors for overdose. So you can see how um, these are patients that you would want to keep an eye on. Right, so obviously, if they've had a lot, then that's a risk factor, uh, absolutely. But these patients with pre-existing liver disease, their nutrition, patients that drink more than three alcoholic drinks a day. So, what about our patients that say, mm, "I just drink occasionally," but their occasionally is regularly? You know what I mean? So they may not be drinking seven days a week, but you'd still say that's probably not a good candidate for a Tylenol. So I think that's when you would, because alcohol competes with that pathway too, and that's how it gets, um, and then that gets saturated, and you end up with the same problem as an overdose. So here's um, uh, the same thing. So these LFTs, can they be a problem even at therapeutic dosing? So when this trial looked at um, healthy adults, and they gave them four grams of Tylenol, and this was for two, four, two weeks, so 14 days, they received those four grams just right at the limit. Right? So that's the limit. And you can see our 76% um, developed more than one elevation in ALT above the upper limit. And then you can see here, when you look at 8%, um, we're even eight times the upper limit. That's when we start to get nervous, right? So even in healthy adults, you just do have to continue to monitor these patients and keep a look at what's going on. Um, so this doesn't even take into account that our patients, especially in my field with serious illness, um, you know, have other things that are going on that will affect this. Um, that we would want to monitor them even more carefully. 
So unintentional overdose is another issue. Um, so when we're not involved, and it's kind of an accidental or an iatrogenic, um, when you look here, there's a, not a great data to say how often this happens because you can see here that um, 44 to 70% different studies have reported different parts. Um, but when you look here at what they're saying they looked at, literacy is a huge component of this. So they did a cross-sectional study, and they looked at um, how patients interpreted the information that they were given, the medication information. And one in four, when they told them how they would interpret what, interpret what they were supposed to do, would have exceeded the maximum amount of Tylenol. And um, a, a half of them would do it based on double dipping two top products that had Tylenol. So it's not that they had one product and they were just taking too much of it by accident, by not understanding the directions. Many of them would do what we see people do every day, which is take an OTC along with their Percocet and forgetting, not realizing that Percocet has Tylenol in it and things like that. Um, the risk factors were low literacy patients, and there were also a risk factor um, that's not listed here, which is patients that had had a previous um, misadventure with Tylenol were the two risk factors. So if you've had a patient that's had a mistake in the recent past, then you need to be even more certain when you do, if you're keeping them on Tylenol, to keep careful eye on them and have the family support that. So when you have an overdose, this is here for your reference. Typically, you're looking at 7.5 grams or more, up to 10 that you would need to see uh, an overdose situation. You can also see chronic overdose um, happen. Here's the four stages. Um, it's, you know, it's tricky. This is another thing you would need to know kind of for the um, exam, but you'd want to make sure to catch this quickly. If you catch it right away, then great, give activated charcoal. Let's get that out to limit GI absorption of it. But most people, you don't catch it that early because it's asymptomatic. So when you see here, you can say, well, there's like a kind of um, indigestion and you kind of get like a sour stomach. But um, your LFTs are normal. Within 24 hours, you're like, oh, I'm doing okay. And then when you look here, you're starting to get uh, stage two. It's not till the next day that you start to get in that right upper quadrant pain. And what do we get for uh, acetaminophen overdose? Yeah, an acetylcysteine. When do you have to give it by? Quickly, right? It's most effective at eight hours. So you can see within eight hours, it's likely not even on that person's radar that something's really wrong. Um, and then it goes down here that um, when you get to stage four, that's the recovery stage. If you survive stage three, lucky you. However, it can take four days to three weeks for the symptoms and organ function to resolve. And even after that, the total recovery for that organ, for your liver, can take months. Um, so this is a pretty big deal when this happens. Now, we know with Tylenol, it's more than just the liver. There's other things that we may worry about. There's, you know, recent alerts for, um, you know, the rare skin reactions that occur, the Stevens-Johnson syndrome, um, TEN, toxic epidermal necrolysis. Um, but really, it's when the kind of the upper layer of the skin is separating, not a good look. So if you see a patient that has kind of a, a occurrence of um, blisters, reddening skin, then you've got to stop. You cannot rechallenge with uh, Tylenol after that. So you're kind of done. Um, and then other things, metabolic changes, um, pregnancy, what does this do when the child is born, and what does that affect asthma risk and whatnot. Um, drug interactions with Tylenol doesn't hit a lot of people's radar. So when you look here, um, we talked about alcohol, which is a big one. So of course, it, it helps, that will speed up this liver damage that we're worried about here. And when you um, see warfarin, this is another big one on this list. The rest are you know, there for your reference. But when you look at warfarin, I think that a lot of times patients on warfarin, we think that doesn't matter because Tylenol doesn't affect the bleeding cascade. And a lot of patients 
go towards Tylenol because they're being told to avoid NSAIDs. Um, so I think that's something to be aware of and to help other people see that when you take weekly doses, so this is just two, about 2.3 grams or higher, you need to monitor the INR. Um, so I think that that's something that um, is not on everyone's radar. So here's dosing. We're all familiar with this, um, how you dose by um, you know, weight for children and, and how you would go up. But I think the biggest thing here is that um, it's still four grams, right? That's still the limit. So even though um, you, know, you can get diff different combinations, however you slice it, however you put together, four grams is still the limit. Now, the FDA, they did say, or McDeal did say, okay, we're going to put a three-gram limit on the OTCs. My take on that is that they were probably trying to maintain their 500 milligram status of those tablets because you know that's what people go to. So when you go to the shelf, you're not reaching for the 325s, you're going for the extra strength because whatever you have, you want gone, and that's how you roll. Um, so just like when you take out, um, you go and you take Motrin at the store, does anyone ever take just one Motrin? No, if you're hurting, you take four, absolutely. Um, but I think that's something with Tylenol. People go for the extra strength and to preserve that. They said, okay, three grams, knowing that people are probably going to keep doing what they're doing with OTC products. But, but either way, um, and the American Liver Foundation also limited, recommended, recommended three grams as well. So roll-in therapy, it's, you know, first line for mild pain, dose limit of four grams per day for the OA, and you can see the people that endorse that, the different societies. Um, you know, it does, and then I think the question in a lot of our minds is, does it add to opioids? So we have combination products out there, and generally speaking, I'm a purist. I was, you know, I was raised by a purist, Dr. McPherson, um, for pharmacy to say, we believe in a combination of drugs, but not combination drugs in chronic pain management. But when you're not talking about chronic pain management, because I think patients need to know what they're on and say, this is Tylenol that I'm taking, this is an opioid I'm taking, um, but when you're not talking about chronic pain management plan and it's like aches, strains, muscle, you know, sprains and muscle strains, then you might use combination products just for ease of administration. And that's okay. Dental pain, great. Rock and roll. The line in the sand when you, Tylenol stops adding much based on the data would be about 70 milligrams per day of morphine. So that's when you start to see, you could probably let Tylenol go, and that's probably not where, it's probably not adding anything except for a pill burden. Um, so under 70 milligrams of morphine a day, I think there's, the data supports that there is still value in adding Tylenol, and I think that's kind of the rule of thumb um, that we use to kind of help guide people and when it would work. So that's kind of where we think stop after 70, you can kind of let that go. So NSAIDs, wow, this is a long list. Would you have guessed all of them? If I had to you close your eyes and try to list all the NSAIDs on this list. Even I looked at this, I was like, wow, yeah, this is a lot of NSAIDs. Um, so they have, they vary um, in, kind of in two different classes. So the half-life kind of separates them into short-acting NSAIDs, and that's things that last generally less than six hours. So that's ibuprofen, um, diclofenac, ketoprofen, and nemethacin. Those are kind of your short-acting group. Um, then there's more of the long-acting that lasts a little longer than six hours, and that's naproxen, um, celecoxib, meloxicam, um, nabutone, and paroxicam. So we love them in a lot of ways because they're analgesic, antipyretic, just like Tylenol, but they add that special anti-inflammatory uh, piece that we usually rely on in many pain conditions. So here are the chemical classes of NSAIDs, and I think um, it bears mentioning that there are allergic reactions to NSAIDs. 
so has anyone um, run into that in practice where you've had a patient that has an allergy to NSAIDs, like a true allergy? Um, this is a tough situation, and unfortunately, you can't rechallenge. Like, there is cross-reactivity between these clinical classes, so you cannot say, oh, you're allergic to one class, we'll try another. Not a good look for NSAIDs. I would not go there. Um, but the one time you can, there is value in knowing which chemical class they belong to is for th treatment failures. So NSAIDs have a lot of interpatient variability. So if someone fails an NSAID and it's not working that well, then there does you should try up to three NSAIDs from different chemical classes that would be worth trying because one may work better than another. You can have very long heated conversations about whether naproxen or Motrin work better and really people have a very different response to these NSAIDs. So if one fails, then head to the other and it's, it's definitely worth um, doing. Mechanism, you see arachidonic acid. It's um, uh, converted and it produces the prostagl prostaglandins and prostacyclines. They do good things, they do bad things. Um, we've got pain, inflammation, fever, um, and the used to think that was like, oh yay, go COX-2. But the renal blood flow is also inhibited with COX-2 too. So that starts to make us think, hmm. So basically when you're shifting the balance of this blockade, it can be problematic because you do get more platelet aggregation and we're going to talk about that. Um, that it can lead to that. So you can see um, the indications here. We're going to talk about um, some of these, but there's a lot of indications here too. So NSAIDs are, you know, kind of a workhorse when we think about this. Some of the um, unlabeled indication that you see people using are for like cluster, cluster headaches. You see things for um, preterm labor, for endomethacin. Um, so there's a lot of data looking at how to use NSAIDs in lots of creative ways. Pharmacokinetics here is, you can see here, it's rapidly and completely absorbed. Um, a little quick fact is naproxen sodium versus naproxen. When would you use, um, if you had a blazing headache, which one would you pick? Naproxen or naproxen sodium? Who cares? Is it important? What do you think? Who would pick naproxen sodium? Who would pick naproxen? So naproxen sodium gets you a faster onset than naproxen. So um, if you had a blazing headache, I would pick naproxen sodium. That's going to get the fast headache. If um, it's a bipolar, um, the bipolarity of it gets a fast, is why it has that faster absorption. Um, but if you have osteoarthritis, then naproxen might be okay because you're kind of looking for that steady state effect and you're taking it more regularly. So you may not need that fast onset. Um, another quick fast fact is if you use naproxen, so if you really want a quicker onset, use it with room temperature water because even taking it with cold water delays the onset by about 10 minutes. So room temperature water, naproxen sodium, that's your best bet for a quick headache remedy. How funny is this? This is so true. Does, can anyone relate to this? NSAIDs can upset your tummy, but they are not dangerous like those opioids. So I think we've become a little bit immune with the, there is a very real fear of opioids out there and overdosing. And I think we should be equally fearful of the side effects to NSAIDs. I think we've all seen them and that should keep us up at night, right? Just saying, there should, there's, wait a minute, wait a minute, these are not a free ride. So when you think about NSAID use, eight out of 10 Americans use them every year. I mean, it's put it in the water. People use them for everything and you can see why there's a lot of indications. But I think four out of 10 users taking doses over the recommended um, warning labels. And here's the part that I think is the kicker. 22% of them, so almost one out of five, so over one out of five people believe that they're gonna get symptoms before complication. And we know that that's not true because you can have clinically significant 
GI complications, um, and you 80% of them have no warning signs. So I think that's something to really bear in mind to say, even though you feel okay, you need to stick to these warning, these dosing limits, um, and and use and use your cautions to know when um, to maybe not use that NSAID. Here's the toxicities we're worried about. So the big one is that gastrointestinal bleeding, not a good look. And these are the risk factors you want to worry about. Um, I think SSRIs are an important thing. This, if you're a community pharmacist, this alert will pop up all the time. And sometimes they're left scratching their head saying, do, how much do I worry about this? Should I call the prescriber? But think about it. Like SSRIs inhibit platelet aggregation. Um, and it predisposes you to bleeding. So you're using two medications that would do that, and that alert is something to potentially take seriously because we don't want to increase those bleeding risks. So in combination with an SSRI, you get increased GI bleeding um, because it blocks the reuptake of, ser of serotonin, right? So when you're using um, an SSRI alone versus adding an, S an, an NSAID to an SSRI, you get 60% higher chances of a brain bleed. Um, so one of the studies, and the, at, the absolute risk is low. So the absolute risk is 5.7 per 1,000. So granted, it is a low risk, but I wouldn't want to increase that risk by 60%, even if it is low. Um, so I think that's something to keep in mind. When we think about looking at the GI, GI toxicity and the mechanism of it, and you think about um, the bottom being this alkaline environment of the blood. So an aspirin or an NSAID kind of comes in and starts to work and blocks those prostaglandin productions, the bicarbonate production. Look at what's protecting your stomach, right? The bicarb, the mucus, things that are blocking um, the protection of your stomach is the bicarb and the mucus. So that's how it gets. It ends up the stomach acid is actually attacking your own uh, gastric mucosa, the lining of your stomach. So it's actually your own acid. It's just you're, you're taking away the protection that your body has from, to protect you from your own stomach acid. And that's what ends up happening, and that's how it causes this ulceration and bleeding. Plain old glutamine. Didn't reverse that. That will... But the bleeding part. Make, we need a combo product maybe, then we could do that, right? So um, things that you look for is the mild dyspepsia, uh, but we know that a lot of this can be asymptomatic, and here are the risks here that we've um, mentioned in the previous slide, so over 60. Um, I used to work for a, a, a clinical pharmacy department and insurance company, and they would tick off, like, how many risk factors a patient had and kind of send them off to say, like, FYI, I don't think they should be on it. Let's try to prevent some of this stuff. Um, and then you think about non-selective versus COX-2s. So even with, um, with a non-selective NSAID, then 10 to 30% may develop peptic ulcer after you know, serious use. So that, that's a pretty high number. Um, so here's the risks again. So when you look here, um, these are a lot of hospitalizations. Here's some strategies. So we look here at the misoprostol. Glutamine's not up there. Maybe we'll put it up there for next time. Um, using a PPI for... Um, uh, in combination to help give some of that protection, using higher dose H2s as an option, and then maybe you, avoiding some of the long half-life NSAIDs, and that way you can kind of have some time where your gastric mucosa can kind of be uh, intact. Um, but the big thing that we stress to our pharmacy students is saying dyspepsia, um, dyspepsia and gastritic are, are not equal to a bleed. 
So, I mean, a bleed is a big deal, right? I mean, that's something we really take seriously. And bleeds are, can be asymptomatic. So just because they have dyspepsia doesn't mean it's leading to a bleed. It kind of can be separate things. Um, but if it's enteric-coated, buffered, or taking with food, that does not take away the risk. So I think that's something to remind patients. If they say, oh, I'm not worried. I'm taking it with food, you don't get out of that one. So here's the um, COX-1 versus COX-2 selective. You can see here which ones are more versus less. Um, it's really a sliding scale. So it's hard to say, oh, these are non-selective and these are selective. It's almost like how selective are they um, because we know. So COX-2, um, it avoids kind of the effects of the COX-1 on the platelets and um, decreases inflammation. It treats pain and fever. Um, but you can still get prothrombotic effects even with COX-2s. Um, the COX-1, you worry about cytoprotection from your GI, platelet function there, renal function. And when you think about the prothrombotic effect, um, it's just another balancing act where the arachnonic acid goes down the other end of the pathway, and that shifts the balance, leading to platelet aggregation. And then we're worried about an MI or a stroke as a, re as a result. So when you think about cardiovascular adverse events, um, both COX-2 selective and non-selectives can increase that cardiovascular risk. Um, it's lower than, um, gastro than the gastropathy, the gastropathy, um, and it's that imbalance between thromboxane and prostacycline on the endothelium. Um, here's the risk factors here, um, and I think that's something that we're looking for and taking very seriously. You have to think pretty long and hard about putting someone on the inside these days, I think. Um, so, and then don't forget that strokes are part of that equation. Um, so adverse effects are renal, of course. All systemic NSAIDs um, increase that risk of the renal adverse effects. Um, the, there's a couple that are more troublemakers than others, the nemethicin versus the other non-selectives. Um, here's some uh, strategies here. And then risk, we worry about that with our older adults. So it's definitely something that patients with CHF or diabetes or other reasons that they might have um, renal insufficiency or, or renal, other concomitant renal um, problems. Um, other adverse events here that you'll see, um, you know, clotting, patients with clotting problems and respiratory um, issues, I think that that's something. And then um, the NSAIDs, drug interactions with NSAIDs are something that I think we don't always think of. So we think of their side effects and things that they can do that can be the toxicities. But I think thinking that um, hepatotoxic drugs like acetaminophen, antibiotics, and epileptic drugs are still a problem. Um, so when you think about al alcohol here, if you say, oh, this patient, we're trying to avoid NSAIDs, they drink alcohol, the NSAIDs are not good either. So that there, you can't really go over there to get away from that. Um, here's dosing here, just there for your reference. When you think about NSAIDs and their place in therapy, um, you can use them for their um, anti-inflammatory effects. Here's the drug interactions here. That'll be there for your reference. But remember, the SSRIs are on there too. So when that drug interaction pops up, I think that's something that should be um, warranted. Dosing's there for your reference. Um, the anti-inflammatory effects of the analgesic, this is kind of where we use it, right? This is their place in therapy is and inflammatory pain. Uh, mild to moderate pain, you can get opioid sparing effect with NSAIDs, and I think a lot of us count on that as using it kind of alongside if we need to use other opioids or other medications. Um, and topical NSAIDs. So how many people have experience using topical NSAIDs? Yeah. So I think, um, yeah, we have a little slide on that. I'm just going to say, hold tight on that. Um, but I think we just, the main takeaway is just being judicious. Um, and when we think about topical, 
you know, it's not, you say, okay, well, the bioavailability is low, but you st still have the same black box warnings as the systemic. So I don't know what your experience is, but generally thinking that it doesn't have the systemic absorption, um, so you can get some uh, benefit there from not getting that, but you don't get out of this one free either. You can still get fluid retention. Um, you can still get some systemic side effects, even though it's not being completely absorbed. Um, I, I, you can see here the GI effects are three times lower with topical versus oral, um, and you can use it to minimize effects, so it might be a good middle ground. So corticosteroids. Um, we use this very beneficial in advanced illness patients. Um, as we said earlier, the corticosteroids, when we use for advanced illness, we don't usually put them on with the intention to necessarily stop them when it's an end-of-life situation and we're using them for anti-inflammatory effects. But you can see here um, there's a lot of reasons that they would be um, useful. Very similarly, so I had an anesthesiologist stop me and say, okay, well, can we use, is there any benefit in using corticosteroids with NSAIDs? And you would say, well, <laughs> no, you don't want to do that. That is really um, exponentially high side effects that you're looking at combining those two. So that's not one that you can use together for any type of synergy um, as far as inflammatory effects go, as much as we would like that to, to be the case. So glucocorticoids reduce pain. It also inhibits the prostaglandin synthesis, um, which then affects the inflammation. And when you think about dexamethasone versus prednisone, um, dexamethasone has the least mineralocorticoid effects, and that's why we tend to use it in end-of-life care, um, because it, ha it has that sodium retention. Um, it, has the, it does not have that where other steroids would. So we tend to use once or twice daily dosing. You can use dexamethasone once a day. Um, it, it lasts long enough and it would work long enough, but we split it up just for GI tolerance and it helps a little bit with that. We don't tend to do it when we split the dose. We don't tend to do it in the evening because it can be stimulating and kind of help um, harm people as far as sleeping. So we tend to do it in the morning and then right at lunchtime, and then that's the last day. But we do split it just for tolerance. So when you look here at the adjuvant analgesics, you start at the top and you say, these are these workhorse drugs. They have multi-purposes. They can cover a lot of different pain indications. And then it gets down to the bottom where you're thinking, okay, these are a little bit more specific radiopharmaceuticals, for instance, that are going on more targeted mechanisms for pain. And when you, when you think about adjuvant, say, well, do they really work here? Um, I'll read you the conclusion because I know the print is small. And it says, overall, the absolute, when they looked at the evidence for treatment of neuropathic cancer pain, and that's when we really think that these co-analgesics for neuropathic pain can really carry some weight is in this neuropathic pain stuff. Um, the absolute risk benefit of antidepressants, anticonvulsants, other adjuvants, um, greatly outweighed the risk of harm. And I think thinking about neuropathic pain, um, it is right to be saying we shouldn't, opioids are never going to carry the ball for us for this. Um, they can help impact, especially in severe neuropathic pain, but you really need that adjuvant on board to help. Um, this is really how a lot of patients describe neuropathic pain, right? <laughs> so here's what we're thinking about when we think about those multi-purpose. Um, so here's the antidepressants here, and you can see that... Um, the, the different groups, the SNRIs, atypicals, the TCAs. You can see the blue ones are the tertiary ones versus the secondary ones, and that's where we 
tend to avoid the tertiary ones and go with secondary. So we want to st stick more with this desipramine and nortriptyline because they have less anticholinergic side effects than the amitriptyline. So amitriptyline has a lot of data. It's been used for a long time, um, but you can get a lot more anticholinergic side effects from that. So we'll talk about that. SSRIs get two question marks. Wonder why. Um, so there, this is kind of a good example of when you get data from a trial and it may be statistically significant but not clinically significant, and that's the category that we kind of put SSRIs in. Um, so the jury's still out what their impact in true neuropathic pain is. Um, we don't tend to use them that much, but when we need, when we have a patient that has depression and neuropathic pain and we want a twofer effect, um, and we're, that's the neuropathic agent we're going to go with, then the preference then would be SNRIs first, then the atypicals, and then the TCA would be kind of the last choice there. SSRIs are not really on, voted off the island for that um, because of a lack of clinically significant data. Um, but the TCAs can be a problem. That's why they're the last choice um, because you really do need high doses to treat the depression, and then you'd worry about heart block and some of the other side effects that go along with it. Um, so SNRIs become a good option here. So when you look here, um, the pain relief is really independent of the mood effects on it. So um, you can use them in non-depressed patient and not have that. And when you look at TCAs, you do need lower doses for pain than you would use for antidepression. So we just talked a little bit about that. Um, here's the mechanism of action here that's there for your reference, block sodium channels. Um, it has that secondary pharmacodynamic effect, that anticholinergic, and that's where we're going to worry about the side effects, especially for um, the TCAs. So when you look at the TCAs here, this is uh, important, that sliding scale there. That's the order of their histamine and their K um, value. So when you look at how they're tolerated, the disipramine then is the lowest antihistamine, anticholinergic side effect, and that's usually the one that we're choosing, nortriptyline or disipramine. Um, so they're just tolerated better, and they're equally effective, so there's no reason not to use them. Low-dose doxepin for sleep. So um, people, I've seen it used, um, but I think in an elderly population, I would be a little bit worried about orthostatic hypotension. Um, so we, when we do see that, usually if it's useful, we'll switch them to trazodone. So um, I don't know if anyone else has anything on doxepin, but generally speaking, so not using for pain, but using it for sleep. sleep. Yeah. Usually you're using that, and usually at low dose, you're getting more of an antihistamine effect. So we would never use Benadryl for sleep in an elderly patient, so then we would switch, probably switch them over to another um, sleep aid. Um, but good, good question. So the risks of TCAs here, um, you can get a pretty significant withdrawal reaction. And I think when you look here, what we kind of said earlier that there's a lot of things patients can be withdrawing from, when they, especially when they get admitted to a hospital. Um, this looks a lot like the flu. So I think that's something to be careful of. If someone's not feeling well and they haven't been taking their TCAs, this is not going to help them. Um, so making sure that they stay on their TCAs through any, when they're feeling um, poorly to help. Otherwise, you're going to feel even worse because you're going to get these flu symptoms that are withdrawal. Get rebound um, depression. Increased suicidality is, uh, uh, is kind of a growing concern. Um, and there's that block now for children and young adults. Um, and then the QTC issues, eh, I mean, you worry more about heart block with TCAs, right? And then um, is there a risk to switching to mania? Um, potentially, but it's a, little bit, it's a little bit small, depending on the population you're working in.
Um, so we talked about the um, antihistaminergic effects. Um, we start with low dosing, so 10 to 25 milligrams at bedtime is a good way. You want to get up to about 50 to 150. Um, giving it at night is a good idea. Um, you can see the metabolism there, and then this um, anticholinergic effect that you see here. So you know the, um, the old adage of what you do, you just can't, can't see, can't spit, you know, that's not, that's not a, um, okay, so you want everything dried up, you're going to get constipation, um, and then remember the secondary or better than the tertiary means. Um, so you can see here the cardiovascular risk. Um, the orthostatic hypotension, I think, is something that um, to, we need to pay attention to, especially in our elderly adults. And even at low doses, you can see that. So I think that's where you worry about the doxepin or when people are using these medications, even at low dose, doses. Um, and then the QT prolongation, we're not sure if that's the mechanism for the sudden cardiac death. But um, in amitriptyline equivalents, we're kind of avoiding doses up to 100. So start at those lower doses. They might help because pain patients tend to respond to lower doses. You don't need to get up to those antidepressant doses to treat neuropathic pain typically. Um, and if they do need to discontinue these medications, do your best to taper it because the withdrawal can be fairly brutal. SNRIs, you can see here. Um, neuropathic pain, they also treat the depression. You, um, remember we talked about that. Um, the ones of choice are generally venlafaxine and duloxetine. Um, they don't have the same anticholinergic antihistamine effects as the TCAs. Um, and then a lot of their dosing and things like that are listed here. So 30 a day for Cymbalta um, or Duloxetine. And then Venlafaxine, you're aiming for around 150 or 225. We think about using all of these medications and thinking, okay, well, what about serotonin syndrome? That's another alert that pops up all of the time. Um, we, I think sometimes we see this more often than we think in our patients that are taking multiple serotonergic drugs and they have... Um, mental status changes, and it's something that we may want to start looking at a little bit. When you look at the Hunter criteria um, that's listed here, um, that kind of is a good way to help recognize serotonin syndrome and say, okay, if they're on a serotonergic agent and they have one of the below, um, then that's a good, I mean, the temperature, I think, sometimes goes unrecognized too, and that's what you start seeing with serotonin syndrome. So when those alerts come up, then that might be a good thing to slap on the chart and just have people start looking to see if that's something that's really um, playing into the picture. And then not forgetting, too, that there's OTC products that have serotonergic activity that can be playing into the situation. So Wellbutrin or Bupropion is um, a similar. That's one, listed as one of those atypicals, that it has a norepinephrine and 5-HT3. It has a less potently dopamine reuptake. Um, you can use it, see it used for smoking cessation too and depression. Um, it can be a little bit activating, so it's uh, sometimes hard to use um, get dosing at night. Sometimes we move it to dosing it in the morning. Um, but this is one thing that I tend to think of when I have a patient that has hypoactive depression um, or even um, hypoactive delirium if we're starting something that at least it can be a little bit um, stimulating. Yes? Yeah, I know, using tramadol with an SSRI. I mean, I think it's commonly done. It's frequently done. Um, I think as long as you're monitoring it, that's the big thing. The, 
there's often so many serotonergic drugs. I think as much as we can limit the serotonergic burden, so if there's another option, I would probably go with that. If you can use like another low dose opioids, like a 2.5 of oxy, sometimes I'll do that. But, but if you do the tramadol and that, then I think as long as you're monitoring and then try to eliminate anything else that's on the profile so that if those are the only two, you might be able to get away with it. There's actually a good scale for serotonergic burden. Um, so if you look, or I can, I'm happy to send it to you if you email me, um, that you can actually add up the different burden that a patient has for serotonergic agents. And then it kind of can give you a threshold of when you, you know, what the burden is for that patient. So I think thinking about serotonergic burden is important. But if you're just using those two and there's no other serotonergic, then you, I think you're in the clear if you're monitoring. Um, so good question. So here, um, once you start at 100 to 150, you want to get up and look how high this dose can go. So 150 to 450 um, for bupropion. Here's um, when you think about activating versus sedating, and this is important a lot in our um, advanced illness or serious illness patients. Um, a lot of times we have patients that um, are having trouble sleeping. So some of the patients that you might see with sleep aids put on, then if we're choosing an SNRI or an, S or an SSRI even, then we'll go with something that's a little more sedating like paroxetine or mirtazapine and then give it to them at night um, so that you're kind of getting that two for effect um, and at least avoiding the ones that are activating um, like fluoxetine and, and venlafaxine. And then the ones in the middle are a little bit more neutral. So other concerns, hyponatremia, I think that's um, SIDH-mediated. Um, so you're looking at um, fluid, CNS status changes, and there's not great recommendations for monitoring. Um, a lot of them are opinion-based. So you can think about, okay, well, so you want to check a sodium within the first month if there's a risk factor, and here's some of the risk factors there. Um, but the incidence is as high as about 32% of those that are exposed. That's pretty high. But um, it's frequently seen within the first two weeks of initiation. So if they're having someone with this on long-term therapy, I think a check could be helpful. And then after that, you could be um, good to go. So QTC prolongation, we're worried about citalopram more than escitalopram. We talked about that a little bit before, about the dosing limits that are in place, 40 milligrams and 20 if you're um, older, and that you might need a ba uh, baseline EKG. Um, and then the bleeding risk, which we talked about, especially at monotherapy. So anticonvulsants, you can see here is the list. Um, we will, a lot of this will be um, in your notes for reference. Neuropathic pain, um, these are not you know, necessarily our first line, but we do um, think about them for those pains that are kind of lancinating pain, those sharp, um, sharp and burning neuropathic pain conditions. These can be really helpful uh, medications. So here's the mechanism here for your um, so you can think of the sodium, the voltage-gated ion channels for sodium. That's when you think of phenytoin, um, carbamazepine, and calcium is more your gabapentinoids. Um, so when you go back to that original mechanism slide, you can kind of see where they, where they act there. Gabapentinoids um, bind to the two delta subunit of the voltage-gated uh, voltage calcium channels. Um, and you can see how when, it, when you use gabapentin, I think the major thing with gabapentin is the dosing. Um, I'm sure that I'm not alone in seeing many sub-therapeutic dosing of gabapentin, and then people kind of give up on it, and the patients think that didn't work for me. Um, so I think that that's a, a big challenge in using gabapentin is getting to an effective dose. So we'll talk a, um, a little bit about that. Um, so when you start low and you think, okay, 100 to 300 milligrams at night is a good way to start, 
but really you've got to get up to 1,800 milligrams a day before you can decide whether to fish or cut bait with this medication. So if you get up to 1,800 milligrams a day and you're seeing benefit, keep titrating to 3,600, and that's the max dose. Um, so if you're seeing benefit at 1,800, then keep going with that medication. If you're not seeing a benefit at 1,800, then I think that's time to think about something else. There's not a benefit in further titration at that point. So 1,800 is kind of the line in the sand. And don't forget renal dosing because that's for the patient with normal renal function. So pregabalin um, similarly works on voltage-gated calcium channels. Um, it can be used sometimes when gabapentin is not affected. You can use pregabalin with some success. Um, you'll see similar side effects here. The peripheral edema is something that we do think about, especially with our heart failure patients. Um, so that's something to be monitoring for, and then that might kind of take that class out. Um, but the, the difference between gabapentin and pregabalin is generally the, the titration. So you can get to where you need to go a little quicker. Um, so it depends on kind of your timing and the acute nature of the pain. Um, deciding one versus the other, and as we all know, insurance coverage. So when you think about using these medications with an opioid, um, this was interesting data that shows what we see in practice, and they looked at 41 patients um, with neuropathic pain, and they randomized it to one of these four groups. And when you look here at the different groups, you could see that um, when gabapentin was used with morphine, the doses were able to be lower um, than the other two arms, and they had better pain relief. Um, so I think that um, the only cost to this was a little more constipation and dry mouth, so that has to be balanced against that. But I think we do see that those, those for severe neuropathic pain for opioids and an, uh, an adjuvant can be very helpful. Here's other anticonvulsants. They're here for your reference. Um, and you can look here. It's not very commonly common that we're looking for phenytoin, but um, sometimes we go there. And then lidocaine um, is another thing that you're thinking of, the sodium channel blockers. This will be there, too, um, for your reference. And here's some concerns. I'm going to skip a little bit along so we can talk about NMDAs quickly. Um, so NMDAs think um, there's, I think we still need a little bit more data here, but I think we do reach to these for refractory pain cases um, because they think they have an important role to play in the patients that have hyperalgesia. Um, so we talked a little bit about this in one of our earlier sessions for those chronic pain patients where nothing seems to work. Those doses are getting really, really high. A lot of times the dose of ketamine can kind of come in. Um, how many of you can use ketamine in your health systems or in your, where you practice? Um, and are you restricted to oral versus IV? One of um, our favorite stories is saying, um, at our hospital, they were saying, oh, well, you know, we have a patient, we're thinking about using ketamine, and they're like, well, we can't do that here. We need to get anesthesia approval. And the anesthesiologist called us back and said, well, you can use it, but you can't use IV. And we thought, well, that's good, because oral gives us more bang for our buck anyway, so we'll use oral. That's great. Um, so giving ketamine oral, using it in a little bit of um, orange juice, um, can be helpful in increased pain relief, kind of knock out some of that opioid tolerance um, that you can see. Um, cannabinoids, we spent some time on that this morning. Goodness gracious, we, I think, I think we um, told Deb Wiener we, we're going to need a pre-con on this next year because this is a big topic. There's a lot of interest on it. Uh, there is positive data in refractory pain states. We talked a lot about the adverse effects, so you can refer to those notes or, or look here. So basically, when you're thinking through cancer pain, um, or pain situations in general, I think this is just a good summary to say, if you've got that deep nociceptive somatic pain, 
Um, then you're thinking, okay, well, let's think about adjuvants to use. NSAIDs, steroids, opioids, um, they can be really helpful in that somatic pain. Um, if you're having visceral pain, you're thinking very similarly. When you get to that neuropathic, then you're starting to think about what we've just been referring to as the antidepressants, anticonvulsants, and anesthetics. So I think some of these principles you know full well, which is get that assessment. You really want to get to the nature of the pain, the type of pain, to be able to match those mechanisms with the, one of those earlier slides to get the different pathways going, um, and multiple pathways and using multiple targets, not overlapping pathways or overlapping targets unless you need to. And I'm happy to take any questions and stick around for a few minutes. So I know I'm at time. Thank you.